0: The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Ronnie could not understand how such awful things could keep happening to his mother. How much more could she take? Everything would be fine, he told her. The house could be repaired. The insurance would pay. It would just take time. This was not a disaster, only a setback. From Death Sentence The True Story of Velma Barfield's Life, Crimes, and Execution by Jerry Bledsoe. God, who love a little closer, love in mine. God, who love and be my little clinging vine, like to feel. Rosie Like to make you comfy cozy. Well welcome back, Murder Bookies. I'm your host Jill. This is my first episode of my trilogy on Death Sentence, the true story of Elma Barfield's life, crimes and execution by Jerry Bledsoe, Episode sixty-three Broken Hearts and Hearths. A few exciting developments I wanted to share with you. I am now on Patreon. Now you can support the podcast and better, join me on the Zoom the first Thursday of each month, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Our first was so much fun. Yep, it was last week. Spending time with you on the books, the cases, updates, and all things true crime, it's really the best. It is our own little piece of the world to connect with, and I can share some real insider information with you. So please, join me, join Patreon. The link is www.patreon.com backslash Murder Shelf Book Club. Couldn't be easier than that. Oh, and if there's some huge break in true crime or something exciting, we will do a live Zoom. So be on the lookout for that too. I want to thank you for everything that you have done to help the podcast grow, because we have really seen some significant growth. You are awesome, Murder Bookies. Now I want to tell you a little bit about our author, Jerry Bledsoe. He has been writing in true crime forever. He was born in Danville, Virginia in 1941, and then grew up in Thomasville, North Carolina. After three years in the Army, he became a newspaper reporter. And then for more than 20 years, he was a featured columnist in the Greensboro and Charlotte areas. He was a contributing editor to Esquire when he began writing his books. His seventh, Bitter Blood, became a New York Times number one bestseller, and it was made into a CBS miniseries. So he and his wife, Linda, now live near Asheboro, North Carolina. And what a treasure trove Jerry Bledsoe's books are. So definitely read this one death sentence on this really rare type of serial killer. Now, we are a book club, so I want to get into our snack and drink. On Taste of Home, I found a perfect southern appetizer to bring to book club today. A loaded pulled pork cupcake recipe. And as usual, it is really simple. Shredded hash brown potatoes, which you line cupcake tins with cook them. Then you add your shredded pork, your Colby Monterey Jack cheese, sour cream, bacon, bunch of spices, and you put them in the cups. And then you have to pop them in the oven for like 22 minutes. They are unbelievably delicious. I mean, come on, hash browns who pull pork inside and all that wonderful spice. So thank you, Taste of Home, for coming up with a lovely snack for our book club. And I paired this with Sam Plunkett's, the Butterfly Effect Rosé of Crenache 2022. This is a wine that has kind of a peppery, spicy flavor to it, which will really work great with the pulled pork. A lot of ripe berry flavors mixed in, which finds just the right balance between the fruit and the tannins. Absolutely delish. Now, this is an Australian wine, and Sam Plunkett isn't a warm award uh, well, winning wine maker. <laughs> yes, an award-winning winemaker from Plunkett Fowls Winery. And it is, of course, a Naked Wines, my favorite wine club. Costs about $17 a bottle, and then you become a Naked Wines angel, and it's discounted to 12 So I love those angel savings, and I really think this will kick off our book club just right. So bon appetit. So where is our setting for our story today? Well, prior to 1974, the murder rate in Robeson County, North Carolina, was among the highest in the United States, and it really resisted the best of law enforcement efforts to lower that. But in 1974, a Robeson County native, Joe Freeman Britt, became the county prosecutor. Lawlessness was just intolerable to Britt, and he figured to most people, too. So in his first 23 months, Brit will win 22 death sentences, landing in the Guinness Book of World Records, and taking on the moniker of, quote, the world's deadliest prosecutor, end quote. All right, this is a man on a mission. He had said that he felt terrible when murderers were paroled, and the families of the victims were left wondering if someone was coming after them. So that's a pretty decent motivation for becoming the world's deadliest prosecutor. Our story begins on March 13th, 1977. It was a usual sunny day with a breeze as 26-year-old Ronnie Burke is daydreaming of graduating college. He is barely settled into work when the phone rang. On the other end, he hears, quote, I'm a friend of your mother's, said a woman who didn't identify herself. I've heard she's going to be arrested today. They're charging her with Stewart's death, end quote. Completely stunned, Ronnie had spoken to his mother just two days prior, where she said she was concerned about the police, but he assumed it was more bad checks and dismissed it. His mom, Margie Velma Bullard Burke Barfield, was called Velma, and she was dependent on prescription drugs. And when she ran out of them, cash or no, She wrote bad checks to get more. But now the police were interested in arresting Velma for her fiancé, Stuart Taylor's death. Like, what? Now, Velma and Stuart were to marry in May, but he had died about five weeks ago. So this just made no sense. There's no way that Velma Barfield could hurt anyone. She made her living taking care of people, just as she had taken care of Stuart when he got sick. So this had to be some crazy mix-up. Talking to his mom, Velma filled Ronnie in. She had worked the late shift at the nursing home, got off at 7 a.m., and went to bed. Woken up, she was summoned down to the sheriff's department. And there she and Detective Wilbur Lovett began discussing bad checks, which Velma admitted to writing. She had hoped to get to the bank before the checks came due. But then the conversation veered sharply to Stewart's death by poison. Had Velma poisoned him? Deeply offended by this, she told Ronnie, quote, Son, you know I couldn't do something like that, end quote. And Ronnie blew it off because it was so insane. But something, something wasn't right. Trusting his gut, Ronnie gave Stuart's daughter, Alice Storms, a call. And guarded, Alice confirmed that her father had indeed been poisoned. Well, Ronnie suggested it had to come from the chemicals on his farm, right? No, no, Alice said. There was no arsenic in any of those chemicals. But, wait, his mom? No, no, Ronnie knew there was no way. Velma was in fragile mental health ever since his father's death nine years earlier. Depressed, Velma took scores of drugs that her many, many doctors prescribed, increasing in volume over the years. And Ronnie feared she might try to kill herself. Again. Arriving at the Robeson County Sheriff's Department, Ronnie wanted to speak with Officer Lovett. Lovett had almost 30 years in the Lumberton PD, and he'd been appointed chief at one point, but was waylaid by politics. After that, Sheriff Malcolm McLean hired him at the county level as a detective, and Ronnie now demanded to know why Velma was being harassed. Lovett said it wasn't harassment. Velma was a suspect. Scoffing, Ronnie emphatically reviewed Velma's history. Her nerves were bad. She had multiple hospitalizations. She's addicted to prescription medication. She had tried suicide. Quote, you're going to push her over the edge, end quote, he warned the detective. But Lovett was having none of it. This was a homicide investigation, and he would follow the evidence. While this was just plain crazy, and more serious than Ronnie had realized, the next morning he spoke with Velma again, with her looking pale and aged beyond her 46 years. Velma denied any involvement in Stuart's death. Quote, I told you I couldn't do something like that. You believe that, don't you? End quote, as she burst into tears. Ronnie knew this woman had loved him, guided him, taught him right from wrong. But then the world stopped as Velma whispered, quote, I only meant to make him sick. End quote. In those few incredible words, she admitted the unimaginable and life altered forever. Ronnie knew if he left her alone, she would surely kill herself. Get dressed, Mom. They were going to speak to the police. Detective Alf Parnell had been Velma's next-door neighbor, and their families had gone to the same church. Alf was with Wilbur Lovett when they came in. Settling in, Alf asked if Velma recalled the rights he had read her, which still applied. Did she understand this? Yes, yes, she did, sobbing and sobbing. Velma managed, I didn't mean to kill him. I only meant to make him sick. Ronnie interrupted. Wait, wait, wait. Did his mom need a lawyer? Oh, my heaven. Pick up an attorney on the way to the murder confession. Don't ask in the middle of it. Oh, my goodness. I guess Ronnie never watched a single cop show growing up. Well, Velma didn't want an attorney. And Ronnie went out to call his sister, Kim Norton. She and her husband, Dennis, and their daughter lived in nearby Lumberton. Ronnie told Dennis that Kim should get down to the sheriff's office. Mama was in trouble again. On arrival, Ronnie broke the news to Dennis and Kim, quote, she's confessing to poisoning Stuart Taylor. That's first degree murder, end quote. And the floor dropped away as Kim became hysterical. Driving home to fill in his wife, Joanna, it dawned on Ronnie. This district attorney was the world's deadliest prosecutor, Joe Freeman Britt who would undoubtedly try to send Velma Barfield to the gas chamber. Hours later, Alf Parnell called Ronnie and explained that Velma had confessed to killing Stuart. Yeah. And others, too. What? Heart-beating like a jackhammer, Ronnie passed on this development to the family, which now included Velma's sisters, Arlene and Fay, who had come in from Charleston. Others, the chorus gasped. Ronnie said two elderly men Velma had cared for and a grandmother. They screamed and Arlene gasped, quote, what is wrong with her, End quote. Well, that's a question that we ask. I think everybody asks, right? Well, before we go further, let's figure out the world that created Belma Bullard Burke Barfield, the serial killer. South River, eastern North Carolina divides Cumberland and Sampson counties. There, sandy, bleak farmland dominates the area dotted with cypress tree swamps. John Bullard's family farmed these lands for generations, raising tobacco. He and wife Isabel would raise six children. By 1926, their youngest son, Murphy, was remaining home to take care of him and Isabel in their old age. Murphy was six feet tall, 200 pounds, so a big guy, a lively, volatile young man, and a hard worker, liked by all. And Lily McMillan fell for him. They eloped on July 27, 1929, several months before the stock market crash would usher in the Depression. The home Lily moved into was sparse, next to a small creek that provided the grist mill power, the economic epicenter of the town. Their small home, with unpainted wood plank walls and a leaky roof, had a kitchen that was accessible only by walking out the back door through the porch. All right, so that's interesting. Flies and mosquitoes were a nuisance with unbearable heat in the summer, and a single brick fireplace provided warmth in the winter, but Lily was thrilled to have her own place even if they were sharing it with John and Isabel. First came son, Olive, then their daughter, Margie Velma, called Velma, born on October thirtieth, 1932. John Bullard would pass in February of 1936, and Murphy's mother, Isabel about a year later. Over the next decade, five more children would be born to Murphy and Lily. Jimmy, Arlene, Tyrone, and twins, Faye and Ray. That's so cute, Faye and Ray. Switching job numerous times, Murphy would work hard each day to support the family. This man never missed a day of work, and he was never late. Amiable, eager to help anyone, he was a good friend and neighbor, and everyone saw how well-behaved and obedient Murphy's kids were. Yet Murphy had some problems handling money. Quote, he bought what he wanted instead of what he needed, end quote, a relative would say. Lily and the children were subjected to his dark rages and uncontrolled violence over whether an egg was not prepared to his liking or a tool had been left out of place. Now that's some high standards for a guy with seven kids. Without any idea of what might set Murphy off, the family walked around on eggshells, fearful all the time. Lily would rush about trying to make the house perfect before he arrived. And if something was out of place, she would take the blame, hoping to protect her kids. But they were often beaten anyway. And as careful as they were, they couldn't completely avoid daddy's black anger. This happens in abusive households way too much. The little ones just remained mute most of the time. But Olive and Velma would smart mouth back, and it escalated very fast. And angry Velma, resented her mother for her meekness and not intervening more when the kids were being abused. Lily was also subject to Murphy's jealousy, ridiculously accusing her of looking at other men. All right, this is a woman with seven kids who rarely left the house, let alone went off goo eyed over other men. I mean, this is ridiculous. And years later, Velma would believe the root of this lay in her father's own infidelities. Murphy wasn't a big drinker, but when he did indulge in some moonshine, he'd binge. Decades later, after Murphy became a Christian and gave up alcohol and began to control himself, Velma finally asked her mother why she had never left him. And startled, Lily looked at her, quote, Well, where would I have gone? End quote. Whenever she was asked about her childhood, Velma would say, quote, I was always afraid. End quote. So escape was the dream that sustained Velma, getting away from her violent father, endless chores, embarrassing shack of a home, from a mousy mother as tensions, anger, and resentment welled up in her. Well, escape began in elementary school, where Velma proved to be a very good student, but the downside was Velma was ashamed of her clothes and had feelings of insecurity as resentment grew. Bullied, Velma shied away internalizing, she complained of headaches and stomach aches, which excused her from school and her hated chores. She discovered that being sick brought her attention and she thrived on it until her father figured out she was malingering and that was the end of that. So chores. Now, okay, so all the Ballard children had assigned jobs, which evolved as they grew older. So what began as sweeping or feeding chickens grew into handling mules or harvesting tobacco and cotton and Velma couldn't return to school until it was done. The oldest girl, Velma also had to care for the younger siblings, clean house, wash, iron, and mend. And with Lily suffering from chronic migraines, well, yeah, you think, the burden fell on an unhappy Velma. Now, there were some happy times. Murphy and the kids would play baseball, and he just seemed to come to life, enjoying the fun, a totally different person in Velma's eyes. He taught the kids to swim at the mill pond, mostly by dumping them in the deep end and letting them fend for themselves. But at times, her father would call her sugar or honey and hug her and tease her kindly. She loved these moments, craving his attention. Her best memory, having taken a drive into Fayetteville, she was window shopping and her eyes just went wide. The mannequin, and guys, this time it was actually a mannequin had the most beautiful pink dress on she had ever seen. And to her shock, her daddy pulled out the cash and he bought it for her. But the abject joy she would never forget. Giddy anticipating showing it to her mom. Velma was deflated when Lily commented, quote, that ruffle's going to be awfully hard to iron, end quote. Ugh, I, I, I really do feel for Velma. This is not easy. She's not having an easy time of it. Deciding that they should rent a house closer to Murphy's job, Velma was uprooted in a new town, knowing no one. In the ninth grade, almost 15 years old, her grades began to suffer, save for one shiny grace. Basketball. Velma was good. I mean, she was really, really good. She made the team staying after school to practice. And just as the season was about to begin, that's when Lily gave birth to Ray and Fay, the twins, And now Velma was needed at home and had to drop out of school entirely. Bitter, disappointed, her resentment in her mother grew exponentially. Now, next door to the Bullers lived the Burks in a much nicer white home with French doors. Son Thomas Burke was a year older than Velma. Tall, lean, shiny black hair and big jug ears. He paid attention to a very self-conscious surprised Velma. Thomas was easygoing and made her laugh. Now, Murphy immediately banned Thomas from the house. No dating until Velma was 16. And at 16, Murphy still said no, but Thomas was persistent. Eventually, Murphy grudgingly permitted them to date, but with really firm restrictions, like a 10 p.m. curfew. One minute late, there'd be a violent tirade. But Thomas and Velma started going to movies and drive-ins like normal teenagers, Thomas was a senior, Velma a junior, and he was really tender towards her, something 17 year old Velma craved deeply. After a movie one night, Thomas suggested they should get married. Impossible, said Velma. Her father would never allow that. Thomas then said, well, they could elope and go to South Carolina where there was no waiting period or parental consent needed, and Murphy would just have to accept it then. And this is exactly what they did. On December first, nineteen forty-nine. Yeah, but Murphy still has to be told. Yeah. Well, several days later, Velma told her mother, hoping that she would tell Murphy for her. Only Lily said, "Ah, no, no, no. This is this is your news to tell." And after a sleepless night of nerves, the next morning, Velma blurted out, quote, "Thomas and I got married last Thursday night." End quote. All oh, hell broke loose. Far worse than anything Velma had imagined with her father threatening an annulment, yelling and throwing furniture. The anger spilled over into a fight with her brother, Olive, and Murphy left in a fury. The anticipation was terrible. Finally, hours later, Murphy returned drunk. He ordered Lily to pack his things. He was leaving. No one cared about him. It didn't matter what he thought or wanted. They were all against him, and he plopped down crying, with everyone shocked. Murphy crying? Well the spoiler is Murphy doesn't leave. Velma packed her things and went off with Thomas and his father. So Thomas drops out of school and secures a job, with Velma nestling down to being a housewife. Very soon she was pregnant and she gave birth december fifteenth, nineteen fifty one, to Ronald Thomas Burke. Who we've already met. Swept away, crying with happiness, she held her baby boy and cooed at Ronnie. A year later, Kimberly Marie was born. Velma swore that her children would have a positive and happy childhood no screaming, no beatings, they would be treated with respect. And the family went to church, never missing a Sunday. She read to her children, probably one of the biggest gifts that she could give to them. Instilling into a child a love of reading early, the whole world opens for them. As her kids began school, Velma served as class mother and was there for every party, field trip, and special event. As Thomas began making more money, they moved into a nicer home with a big backyard in Parkton, North Carolina, which became the family gathering spot, with Detective Alf Parnell living next door, his twins becoming friends with Ronnie and Kim. Velma taught a children's Sunday school class, worked at a volunteer with the church youth groups, while Thomas was an usher. They went to the movies, they bowled, played miniature golf, and of course basketball. They spent weekends at the beach and were really enjoying life. In early 1963, Velma experienced some hemorrhaging and was diagnosed with fibroid tumors in her uterus. So since she and Thomas had decided their family was complete, the hysterectomy was given a go. But following the surgery, Velma was never the same. Depressed for days, edgy, anxious, she snapped at the kids and Thomas and then felt guilty. She stressed over her weight, which was like 125 pounds or 57 kilograms, which is normal, but she took diet pills anyway, becoming edgier and more high-strung. Then she would yo-yo diet and then binge on eating desserts, and then felt pathetic for doing this to herself. Spending sprees came next as she began the lifelong habit of passing bad checks, and she would beg the businesses to give her a chance to pay them back. As the kids turned 12 and 13, a series of things seemingly unrelated occurred. First, out of the blue, Thomas left a note. He'd had a falling out at work, and he'd gone to Florida to try to find a job. He what? A stunned and deeply hurt Velma tried to grasp how her husband could just take off like this. While on his return, he did manage to get his job back at Pepsi, but making up with Velma was going to be far more complicated. Now, Velma began having some bad back pain, and she was prescribed pain pills. This was about the time that Thomas joined a civics group called the JCS. And this was the first time since they'd married that he'd taken on some kind of solo endeavor and occasionally would leave Velma and the kids alone at night. And Velma took a day job at Belk's department store. Driving there one day, Velma blacked out causing a car accident and she had no idea what happened. But Thomas had a theory. She had just taken too many pills. And this is kind of the beginning of that. Now in 1963, the FDA approved a new drug maybe you've heard of it, called Valium for relieving stress and anxiety. And overnight, it became, quote, the most widely prescribed drug in the world. But nobody was aware then of the dangerous side effects it could produce, end quote. Sounds kind of like another Oxycontin. That summer, Thomas hired a builder to begin working on a three-bedroom home for the Burke family with everyone delighted. But one night, when Thomas was driving home to the new house from a JC event, he crashed the car. Knocked out, concussed, he suffered from multiple lacerations. Velma believed the cause was Thomas's drinking. Thomas, of course, denied it. After watching the binge drinking her father did as a child, Velma had zero tolerance for alcohol. To drink was to let the devil come inside. She had admired Thomas so much when they were dating because he hadn't been into sneaking beers. Thomas had never wanted to go out with his buddies and drink and carry on. He had been devoted to his family, work, and church for the last 14 years. When Velma realized that Thomas was having a beer with his JC buddies, she was horrified. Thomas thought she was overreacting. Why couldn't he relax and have a beer? He worked really hard. He was supporting the family. Friction escalated, arguments ensued, and their happy family life began deteriorating even before they'd really gotten moved into their new home with an $80 mortgage. $80. Velma was deeply worried about the church congregants finding out Thomas was drinking, so Thomas decided to go to church less, causing more arguments. Both became entrenched in their positions his manly independence and her self righteousness. Not for years did Velma realize that she was as much to blame as Thomas. "Chastising him for drinking unleashed something dark and suppressed within her. She became just as short-tempered as her father had once been." End quote. The kids tried to intervene, separating their parents when they got into it. The unexpected death of Thomas's father caused him to descend into a black depression fueled by liquor. Velma was not understanding. And then, in 1967, Thomas got a DUI, losing his license and his job. His drinking grew worse, and the kids never had friends over for fearful of what they would find, not an uncommon coping device. Velma consulted with two doctors and decided to have Thomas committed to the Dorothea Dix State Hospital in Raleigh, known as the Crazy House. He knew he needed help but he signed himself out of treatment after three days. Thomas then packed his bags, leaving to go live with his sister in Florida. Unable to find work, Thomas returned three weeks later to Parkton, a small town where everyone knew everyone else's business, including Thomas being sent to the crazy house. Embarrassed, Thomas only left the house to buy alcohol. He shut down, refusing to interact with Velma. Critical mass was hit when she suddenly collapsed on the kitchen floor, with Ronnie unable to wake her. Taken to the hospital by Grandpa Murphy, Thelma was having a nervous breakdown. She was given vitamin shots with sedatives and remained in the hospital for a week. Advised to get marriage counseling, she was then prescribed tranquilizers. Thelma refilled them until she was cut off and then went to another doctor as the era of doctor shopping began. Valium and a barbiturate sedative were added to her prescription cocktail. When she began suffering from chronic headaches and insomnia, another doctor prescribed painkillers, plus more Valium, and sleeping pills. None of the doctors knew about the others. And there were near-miss car accidents, coupled with more bizarre behavior by both Thomas and Velma independently. Now, both tried to cut back on drinking and pills, but the situation was terrible, and ironically, the kids would escape going to Murphy and Lily's, just as teenage Velma had sought to escape. But then tragedy struck. A grim Velma picked up Ronnie from school, telling him, Daddy's had an accident. At the hospital, they learned that there had been a fire. Thomas had gone to sleep with a cigarette and he was found dead on the floor next to his bed, overcome from smoke. Velma moaned, sinking backward, with Ronnie and her sister Fay grabbing her. Kim burst into tears at Daddy's girl, but at 17, Ronnie felt the weight of the world descend as he became the man of the family. But what, what happened? Being given a shot to calm her nerves at the hospital, Velma explained the best she could. Thomas had come home from the night shift, down to six-pack, and went to bed. Since it was her day off, Velma went to the laundromat and had swung by her mother's. After flipping the laundry, Velma headed home to wait for the clothes to dry, and opening the door to the kitchen, the house was filled with smoke. Velma ran, shouting that the house was on fire. Thomas's sister Frances heard her and called the fire and rescue squad. But it was obvious that the Burks were squarely blaming Velma for not helping Thomas, with bickering erupting. Ronnie and Grandfather Murphy went over to look at the house, noting axe marks in the kitchen door. It had to have been chopped open. Well, wait, had Velma locked it when she fled? Well, that's odd. And it looks like Dad's bedroom door had been closed. But Thomas never shut the bedroom door. Soot covered everything, and the acrid smell of smoke was overwhelming. And waters was sloshed everywhere as Ronnie pondered all of this. Thomas was buried in the town's small cemetery. Volunteers had made repairs to the Burke home so that they could live there. But Velma had taken Thomas's death hard. Ronnie told his mom that they should all resume normal activities. Quote, "We've got to move on from this," he said. And then words came that he hadn't intended to speak. At least dad's drinking won't be a problem anymore. Although he felt too much guilt to admit it, from the moment he'd learned of his father's death, despite the pain, he felt a wave of relief. Perhaps peace and happiness could now be restored in the family. I know, his mother said, but I'd rather have him here drinking than dead, end quote, writes Jerry Bledsoe. Hoping that Velma could put the drugs behind her, with the source of her discord and anger gone, Ronnie helped her to pay the bills, file for Thomas's life insurance, and continue the repairs. And Kim just cried. But Velma continued pill-popping to cope. It impacted her behavior. She was slurring, restless, inattentive. She was also addicted to Valium. Now, Valium is viewed as a harmless, feel-good drug. Anyone with a vague problem could get a prescription. And by 1975, 7 billion pills were prescribed, 1 out of 12 in the United States taking it. Not until 1985, so we're talking a decade later, would alarm bells ring, and by then, First Lady Betty Ford would be addicted too. Doctors would learn that Valium accumulates in the fatty tissues, Creating a tolerance with the body demanding larger and larger quantities to achieve the same effect. The side effects included drowsiness, lethargy, slurred speech, loss of coordination, disrupted concentration, memory, and sexual desire. The effects on the addict were even worse confusion, depression, nightmares, insomnia, suicidal thinking, hallucinations, delusions, paranoia, hostility, rage possibly leading to violence. And withdrawal from Valium could be as challenging as that from heroin. Headaches, nausea, sleeplessness, trembling, sweats, cramps, panic attacks, psychosis. Seeking to avoid withdrawal, Velma went to more and more doctors, manipulating them becoming as casual as breathing. In the decade after Thomas's death, Velma would accumulate more than 24 doctors prescribing Valium barbiturates, narcotics sleeping pills, stimulants, antidepressions, and none knew about the others now, five months after Thomas's death, a friend of Velma's from Belk, Pauline Barfield, died out of the blue of a stroke, leaving her husband, six children, and six grandchildren. Her husband, Jennings, had been a civilian engineer at a Fort Bragg and went out on a medical disability, retiring in his forties. Due to emphysema and diabetes. He now had heart problems as well. Now, Jennings would come by to visit Pauline at work, and he would also chat with Velma. He was a nice, good natured man with a big heart who'd been devoted to his wife. And now he and Velma had both lost their spouses. So, Jennings began coming around Belks to chat with Velma, looking lost. And finally, Jennings invited Velma to go out after work for a bite to eat. Surprised, Velma agreed, but she did not tell the kids she was seeing Jennings so quickly after their dad's death. Now, much like her mama, Kim was excelling at basketball, with Velma going to all her games, sometimes yelling at the coach and making Kim want to die of embarrassment. Oh, I have been there. She and Ronnie worked to keep Velma off drugs, gathering them up, doling them out according to prescription. But Velma insisted she needed them or the doctors wouldn't prescribe them. With HIPAA laws decades away, her kids spoke to her doctor, who insisted that she did have valid medical issues requiring medication, having no idea that she was doctor shopping. But the problem, the bills from doctors and prescriptions accumulated faster than Velma could pay. Graduating high school, Ronnie took a job at Pepsi, working for his dad's boss. One day, his supervisor approached, the bearer of bad news. Gently, he told Ronnie that his house had burned. Again. What the hell? The smell of smoke was strong when Ronnie got to the scene, seeing Velma, Jennings Barfield, and his daughter, Nancy. This time, the damage was far more extensive. Everything was gone. Faulty electrical wiring in Ronnie's room was the ignition point. How could all this terrible stuff happen to his mom over and over again? How much more could she take, Ronnie agonized. But Velma reassured him the insurance would pay. It would just take time. It's only a setback. By spring, neighbors saw that Velma was now seeing Jennings Barfield, two lonely friends comforting each other. But Ronnie and Kim were taken aback when Velma announced their engagement. While Velma would later say she never loved Jennings and only felt sorry for him, she now proclaimed her love. Kim was outraged her dad wasn't dead a year, a rift opening between mother and daughter. Kim was also concerned for Jennings, and he realized the amount of pills Velma took. While well, Jennings reassured her that he and Velma would handle anything that came along, spoken like a smitten man. And the flip side to this was, Ronnie hoped this new marriage would bring his mother's drug use under control. So on August 23, 1970, Velma had the church wedding that she missed when she eloped with Thomas, held at the Carroll Memorial Baptist Church in Fayetteville. Velma wore pink, honoring that beautiful dress that her dad, Murphy, had bought her ages ago. Sixteen years her elder, Jennings looked distinguished in his light summer suit, and it was a new beginning. Velma moved into Jennings' Fayetteville house with 16-year-old daughter Nancy. With a year of high school left in Parkton, Kim decided to live with her grandparents, Murphy and Lily, and Ronnie was preparing for college, but this fizzled out when he was unable to raise the tuition. With the Vietnam War raging, Ronnie could expect to be drafted. Taking the bull by the horns, he decided he would join the Army after Kim's basketball season was over. It was a complaint of migraines that sent Velma to Jennings' doctor, Dr. Warden, to get prescriptions. A month later, Jennings brought her into the emergency room, with the doctor noting Velma was unable to walk, talk, her pupils dilated. It was an overdose. The next day, Jennings drove Velma to her parents' house. He had no idea what to do with her, and he wished he'd listened to Kim. Ronnie had a series of long talks with Velma. If she wanted this marriage to succeed, she had to get herself under control. And Velma vowed she'd try harder. And she went home with Jennings. But she wasn't in the clear. A pharmacist called Dr. Warden. Velma was refilling Jennings' prescription medication too soon. And Dr. Warden concluded that Velma was taking them herself. Jennings refused to believe this, he's in denial. After another overdose in November, Nancy Barfield spoke with Ronnie. Velma was drugged all the time, falling over. The strain was going to kill her dad. And again, Ronnie laid down the law to Velma. With her crying, she knew she needed to do better. She wanted it to work. In February, Velma overdosed again as Jennings realized that this marriage was a mistake. He made an appointment with a divorce lawyer for Monday, March 19th, 1971, ready to get out of this six-month catastrophe of a marriage. However, the poor man never made it. Sunday night, Jennings was taken to Cape Fear Valley Hospital, where he died the next day. The family thought his weakened heart just gave out. Ronnie asked himself again, quote, How could one person have such an incredible run of misfortune? End quote. Velma was almost too drugged to attend the funeral and she and Kim would wind up moving back into Velma's newly repaired home. Basic training was fast approaching. With his mom spiraling, Ronnie tried to get out of his commitment to the Army, who did not budge, and Velma would wind up driving to Fort Jackson, South Carolina, numerous times to visit her son. She took another nosedive after Ronnie graduated and headed out for Fort Devers, Massachusetts. That July, her doctor penned a letter to the Army, indicating she had had a complete nervous breakdown, desperately trying to get a discharge for Private Ronald Burke. Trying to pay the bills, Velma took out an $800 loan from the bank. In August, she reported a break-in, with Alf Parnell investigating. A window was broken, and Ronnie's room was turned over. 500 of the $800 had been stolen. There was really little the police could do but Velma filed an insurance claim. Trying to help, Kim was job hunting, waiting in the car for Velma to come out and go. Kim was glad that her mother was coming with her to drop off some job applications. Returning a few hours later, they found, wait for it, fire trucks. The third fire in two and a half years occurred in the cursed home. Velma utterly fell to pieces, moving back in with her parents. Murphy had recently been diagnosed with cancer, likely stemming from a lifelong cigarette habit. And shortly thereafter, due to absenteeism and drug use, Velma lost her job at Belk's. The drugs were just too much. Feeling the pressure, Ronnie applied for a hardship discharge, which was doubtful because now he was due to deploy to Vietnam. But three fires in two and a half years? Three? With Murphy's illness, Lily was handling all she could. And when Velma didn't get out of bed for days, Lily took Velma to the mental health ward in the Southeast Hospital in Lumberton. Velma told the psychiatrist she tried to kill herself as she couldn't face losing Ronnie in Vietnam. Treatment commenced and she was released two weeks later. And then came mixed news. Ronnie's discharge was denied, but he was reassigned locally to Fort Bragg. And then a month later, April 15, 1972, Murphy died upsetting Velma greatly because of the bitter feelings that she had held towards him and then Velma's bank foreclosed and she lost the house in spite of juggling all of his mother's problems ronnie had fallen for the only girl he ever really dated joanna he proposed with an elated joanna accepting his ring velma wasn't told right away but when she was she had a conniption fit he spent all that money on a ring when she was having trouble paying for her medications, she had always been the woman in Ronnie's life, her selfishness stripping Ronnie of any joy. When he was reassigned to Germany, Ronnie and Joanna moved up the wedding, with Velma trying to commit suicide. In a coma, she hovered near death as Ronnie's guilt was overflowing. But Velma did recover and managed to make the wedding. Yeah, of course she did. Selfish, self-centered. Drama, 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 and more drama. Erratic, me, 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 me. She really irritates me, murder bookies. Really irritates me. More shenanigans. Velma was arrested for attempting to pass a forged prescription, which alerted Joanna to the depth of her addiction. And Joanna was there for Ronnie, who needed her reassurance. In court on April 3rd, Velma pled guilty and was sentenced to six months, suspended for three years. So it's going to take a few years, but Ronnie will finally figure out that his mother is staging all of these mishaps to get her hands on money for drugs and to get her son back from the military, but mostly about stealing money for drugs. She is playing the victim card well and often. This is all Velma's machinations. Well, the good news is that Ronnie's discharge was finally approved and he was going to start college at long last. But being in school added more strain to Ronnie and Joanna's marriage. Bickering began escalating until one day, Ronnie grabbed a bat and smashed the telephone, scaring his wife to death as she ran to her parents. And Ronnie was bowled over. Why had he gotten violent like that? He became depressed and it took hold. And as usual, he was still worried about Velma, who was floating from job to job, passing bad checks, and getting arrested again. Lily was forced to lock up her checkbook to keep her daughter away from it, as their relationship became frayed very badly. If Lily asked Velma to help around the house, she would flip out cursing and throwing things around the room, much like her dad used to, with Ronnie noting the deep resentment that Velma bore Lily. Then that summer, 1974, Lily became ill with stomach cramps and vomiting. Admitted to the hospital, they couldn't figure out what was wrong, but a virus was suspected. After a few days, it passed and Lily was discharged. Not long after, Ronnie swung by to see his mom and grandma, and no one answered the door. Oh no, filled with dread, he let himself in and found Velma sprawled on the floor, a pool of blood around her head. Having taken too many pills, she had fallen, striking her head. The wound needed a few stitches, and Velma was released, but everyone was upset and fed up, addiction impacting the whole family, which is, again, sadly, not all that uncommon. Now, Kim was dating a man named Dennis Norton, and that summer, they announced their engagement and set a November 23rd wedding date. Excited, Kim's joy was hedged with anxiety, worrying about how her mother might behave at the wedding. How horribly sad for Kim. But in the end, Velma was fine and she did pull it together. This Christmas was one for the record books, everyone having a festive, joyous time. Lily had never been happier, baking her specialties, German chocolate cake and coconut pies, enjoyed by the whole family around the table. But Lily pulled son Tyrone aside, telling him that the strangest thing had happened. A finance company had sent her an overdue letter about her car payment, but Lily's car had been paid off years ago. Oh no, could it be Velma? Well, no one could know or find out because the next day, Lily was dead. She'd gotten sick after lunch with severe stomach cramps and pains between her shoulders. Writhing, she threw up blood, but nothing seemed to work. Lily died with the doctors mystified. I mean, what illness could work that fast? And Lily hadn't had any underlying health problems, just headaches and varicose veins. Velma, who had taken tranquilizers, couldn't answer many of the questions, and everyone was grieving deeply. But the family decided to do an autopsy, with Velma taking a major downturn, refusing to eat, soiling herself in bed. After three days of refusing, Kim tied her mother to the kitchen chair so she'd not topple over, force-feeding her chicken soup. And then Kim found her on the floor overdosed again. Held at the hospital, Velma sobered up and was released with more prescriptions. When the autopsy came back, it showed an inflammation of the heart, which may have contributed to her lack of response to the medical treatment. With Velma back living at Kim's, Kim announced that she was pregnant. But instead of being overjoyed, Velma overdosed again falling and breaking her collarbone. Drama, drama, drama. Admitted to the mental health ward again, Velma told the doctor she had tried to kill herself, morbid thoughts plaguing her. Gee, what morbid thoughts might these be, Velma? Hmm. And the next drama. The sheriff arrived. Velma had been passing more bad checks. How much more erratic, crazy behavior could Ronnie and Kim take? They had tried to help her. They took her medication away, doled it out, flushed it. This needed to get real. Arrested this time, Velma went to the Robeson County Jail and no one rushed to bail her out. No one. Before the judge, Velma's previous suspended sentence for writing forged prescriptions was revoked and she was sentenced to six months in prison. March 27th, she sat miserable in her cell, deep in drug withdrawal, agitation, headaches, chills, muscle spasms. She was angry with herself for betraying her children, but angry at them for betraying her. Rolled after three months in jail, Velma vowed that she had wasted so much time that she was moving forward, that this whole drug thing was behind her. And six days later, Velma overdosed as Dennis got the call this time about more bad checks written on his closed account. Done. Absolutely done. Furious, Dennis wanted to call the DA himself. But forgery is a felony, and Velma could get 10 years. I'm saying, do it! Do it! Make the call! Kim is completely overwhelmed, and Velma is begging for one more chance. Her probation officer found a halfway house in Charlotte that would take her, and Velma cried and was so remorseful. She only wanted to see her grandbabies because she knew that Joanna was pregnant now, vowing and promising real change. They all took her back in, and what a mistake that would be. But believe it or not, Velma did do better. I was surprised too. She did. She found work taking care of an elderly woman who provided a room, meals, and a small salary. When the elderly woman moved to the nursing home, Velma went to work for 94 year old Montgomery Edwards, who suffered from diabetes that had left him legless and sightless. His 84 year old wife, Dolly, she had cancer, but that did not stop her opinions. And now Kim, being pregnant and on leave, would come by visiting with Dolly Montgomery and her mom, who was doing better. No overdoses. One day, Kim found a man. Stuart Taylor, Dolly's nephew, visiting with Velma. In his 50s with gray streaked hair, Stuart was separated from his wife and he asked Velma out and they were really enjoying themselves. But then Stuart and his wife began trying to work things out, which really irritated Velma, but she really did understand. With Montgomery getting worse, Dolly was becoming critical of Velma's work ethic and thoroughness. Their interaction reminded Ronnie of Velma's squabbles with Lily. And then in January 1977, Montgomery suddenly declined, dying in the hospital at 95 years old. A few weeks later, Dolly started feeling poorly, vomiting, and developed diarrhea. Getting worse, their son Preston took Dolly to the hospital, and she died after three days in intensive care. With both Edwards is gone, concern mounted. Where would Velma live and how would she cope? In just over a year with the Edwardses, Velma had not had a single overdose. Living with others, taking care of them gave Velma purpose, and purpose allowed her to control herself, reducing her drug use. Well, this resolved itself because a week after the funeral, on Velma's minister's recommendation, Margie Lee Pittman called. Her mother, recordly, Lee, age 76, had fallen, breaking her leg. John Henry Lee, who was 80, could not handle Record alone. So they hired Velma, and a week later, she was running the roost. She cooked, she cleaned, she bathed Record, and the Lee daughters, Margie Pittman and Sylvia Andrews, were thrilled. But Velma was not thrilled, however. Record Lee got on her nerves badly, bickering with her husband to the point, Velma took her meds and went to lie down in her room. Then record noticed a returned check from the supermarket that she didn't recognize. Calling the sheriff, they had no leads or suspects that he could suggest. Uh Uh-huh, yeah, you see where this is going. A few weeks later, on April 27th, John Henry Lee was sick and vomiting out of the blue. By 8 a.m. the next day, Velma called the ambulance and the medics were unable to get a blood pressure. But after four days in intensive care, John Henry began to improve. Released on May 2nd, 1977, thankful to be alive, Margie and Sylvia went over to celebrate with Velma serving ice cream and cokes. But throughout May, John Henry had ups and downs. Some days vomiting, some days with diarrhea, cramps, and cold sweats, and his weight was dropping. Velma was attentive and considerate, caring and sweet, and Margie and Sylvia felt lucky that she was there. But on June 3rd, John Henry was back in the hospital critically ill. Margie described the last time she'd seen her dad. Quote, it was late. He was blue up to here, drawing a line across her chest with her finger. He was limp and cold, and I put my hand in his and said, Daddy, squeeze my hand if you can hear me. He didn't squeeze. So I said, Daddy, blink your eyes if you hear me. And his eyes were locked open. With the greatest effort, they came down so slowly, then flew open again. End quote. A short time later, John Henry Lee died. Velma helped to comfort the family, garnering heartfelt thank yous from the Lee daughters for her tender care of their parents. They even gave Velma a small bonus in appreciation. And would Velma stay on with their mama, record? Well, of course she would. And a few weeks later, Stuart Taylor showed up. After eight months of trying, his marriage was over. He was back, and Velma smiled. Velma didn't know it, but Stuart Taylor would be her final victim. Stuart Taylor was born and bred in Robeson County, growing up with five siblings on a tobacco farm. At 18, he married Leola Bentley, who had grown up next door. Their daughter Elizabeth Ann was born, and Alice following two years later. At 30, Stuart and Leola moved into a nice home with three bedrooms, but no bathroom. Stuart did not believe there should be a toilet in a building with a kitchen, but having teenage girls would eventually change his mind. Stuart was a terrific husband and dad and devoted to his wife and girls. An outdoorsman, he loved to hunt and fish with his buddies a few times a year. They would drink beers and just have a hoot, and it was a good life. But then... Leola developed kidney disease and died at age 52. Utterly crushed, Stuart was lost and began binge drinking to numb the pain. A quick rebound marriage came and went, and several years later, when Stuart was standing on more steady ground, he married once more. It was this marriage that he told Velma was over and he was getting a divorce. Velma enjoyed his visit, but still had no idea Stuart drank. After coming by for days for several weeks, Stuart was a no-show, and Velma learned that he was on a binge. When he returned, Velma never raised the issue of his drinking. They spent their weekends together, going on trips, enjoying sex in motels along the way. While Velma attended church being the perfect parishioner, she soon got Stuart to join her, so she's very much keeping up appearances at the church. And this is where I'm going to end episode 63, Broken Hearts and Hearths, from Death Sentence, the true story of Velma Barfield's life, crimes and execution by Jerry Bledsoe. Oh my gosh, there is so much more to come. Drugs, death, investigation, charges. The human element remains heartbreaking. Thank you for listening, Murder Bookies. And I'm going to give you homework now, former teacher here. Leave a five-star review when you listen. It makes a huge difference, and it really means the world to me. You know I'm on Patreon. Our first Zoom was so much fun together, and I'm still kicking around new book ideas. However, our next book is Solving the West Georgia Murder of Gwendolyn Moore, A Cry from the Well by Clay Bryant, and Clay's newly released book, The Cold Case Murder of Fred Wilkerson. Untangling the Black Widow's Web in West Georgia. Author and investigator Clay Bryant has a remarkable personal story here, which makes the cases that he's solved all the more fascinating. So be ready for my first twofer. Both incredible stories. Murder bookies, email me at jill at Club.com. Check out the Warm Weather Merch on Spreadshop. There's some really cute designs. I'm on Facebook and Twitter. Lock your doors and windows and trust your guts, murder bookies. I see you as you hear me. Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved. Music by Carl Hossena and lyrics by Otto Harbach.